on the app, online and across the Cape on 567 AM. This is Cape Talk. There's a piece the, that I wanted to insert into the show and uh, in any future uh, shows that I might host. It, it, the show, the, the piece is on books, on, on writing, on, on reading, on, um, and on review of books. Uh, and I'm very uh, fortunate at the moment, uh, actually today, that the first of these is a uh, book called Between Rock and a Hard Place, published by MF Books. And I'm very privileged, actually, to have uh, in the studio with me the author, Carsten Rush, who wrote this book. And uh, before I get to Carsten, introduce Carsten, actually get him to introduce himself, I want to just read uh, a blurb that Gus Silver wrote, wrote on the book. It says, turn this book up loud. And when I read this book, the book reads to me like... Uh, like a very contemporary music piece, it has it, it has rhythm and cadence, and then it has these crashing of cymbals. So it has a kind of a rock rhythm and a, with with influences of punk. So the book, the way I read it, the book is like a a, a musical piece, and but it's also there's an anarchic element to this book, the way it is written. Now. The way it is written is also, it might have uh, this overall musical cadence to it, but what I liked about the book, uh, among very many things, is the simplicity and the elegance of the prose. You know, uh, as a, having trained as a journalist and having worked as a journalist for a long time, one tries to impress readers with groot woorden and using eloquent sentences and complex sentence structures, when really the beauty of writing is in its simplicity. So that is as much as I'd like to say now at the book. And and now I'd like to uh, Carsten, introduce Carsten. Actually, I'd like to, to introduce himself. Um, just uh, I, in, in this era of, uh, of cronyism and nepotism and, <laughs> and elitism, I should point out that Carsten is an old friend of mine, and I don't appear in the book, thank goodness. But uh, we belong to the same generation. We belong to the same group of people. We'll discuss that in a little bit later, but let's have Carson introduce himself first. Mm. Well, I mean, that's the most tricky part, and it's going to be the most tricky part of this entire interview, I think, is introducing myself. I mean, how do I do that? I'm, <clears throat> you know, I'm, uh, like as he says, I'm his age. I'm around kind of 60s, and... Uh, I've done a, a great many of kind of things. I've I've, uh, I've been a whole bunch of things before I started writing, and one of them is actually to be a, a, a promoter and a, a kind of musician in the early eighties, which is what the book is about. That's a very simple explanation. You know, what I want to do is is is, is Make it a bit difficult for Carsten. <laughs> I want to take this book and situate it in an era. And let me say this. The book, the subtext of the book is the struggle, the emergence and how um, a group of people, if I can call them a group of people, sort of um, a group of whiteies in the 80s battled with the oppressive nature of family heritage um, the army, the oppressive state, and how they resisted and fought against the state in their own way, through their music. Some disappeared, some went underground, all part of resisting going into the army, 
all of which, you know, and, and out of that came such a richness of creativity. Now, throughout the book, you talk about your own family legacy. Um, we all have family legacies. I come from a conservative Muslim family. Mm. And, you know, we always resist. We, we fight against these things. We fight against family and tradition, not just because we're young and rebellious, but perhaps because we see a different way. Can you just discuss uh, that briefly with us, please? The reason I ask is also because, you know, in the book you raise issues about uh, your own conscription into the army and how you refused to return to the army and and how you battled to bring black musicians onto the stage with you. And some of it, you know, you're, it's written in, in a very nice way. Now, you know, just explain that sort of the social uh, and political environment in which the book is situated. Well, it was one of like deep apartheid, you know, where it was illegal to, uh, you know, to appear on the same stage. You could appear on the same stage, but you would have to kind of first uh, apply for permission. Um, if you were black, you would have, you know, the organizer would have to, or the musician maybe would have to apply to the Department of Bantu Affairs to get a permit to appear on the same stage. And um, so, I mean, that was, you know, that was this, that was the story, really. I mean, it, you know, there were curfews, you know. Uh, the black people had to be out of white areas by, I think it was seven o'clock or eight o'clock at night. And if you stayed, if you stayed later, you, you know, if you, if they caught you, you'd get arrested and you'd spend the night uh, in 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 a, in, a, in a police cell. So it was deep. It was deep apartheid, and. Um, but you know, having having said that, I, I actually we got away with with doing this. We got away with putting uh, black musicians, having black musicians play in white clubs in 1980, um, simply by ignoring the rules. And actually, they didn't. You know, no one noticed. <laughs> so we were fortunate. You know, we were too small. I think. And someone else actually kind of suggested a little while ago, I'd, I'd never thought of it like that. They suggested that, in fact, the apartheid government consciously allowed the little things to slip through to create some, to create um, a kind of a feeling that, in fact, they weren't quite as oppressive as everybody was making out they were. It was all public relations. It was public relations, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and then you, I don't believe that actually. You don't. Well, no. you know, they they tried to get propaganda out of every bit of thing they wanted to. But uh, how long did it take you to write this book? Because I imagine this book has sat with you for a very, very long time. Well, you know, I mean, actually, the way that things normally work with me is that I am I'm not a very patient person, and um, if I have an idea, then uh, then I I want to do it immediately. And uh, so, I had this idea to write this book, and then I started immediately. And um, and uh, and uh, once I started, I didn't stop. And so I wrote it. I wrote it in about nine months, and um, yeah, so well, it's very courageous. I I say because. Um, you know, I, I, I have this, I've been a writer, been writing for a long time, but the one thing I can't write is a book. Only because, A, I don't think I have the skills, B, I don't think I have the focus and the dedication. We all have stories, but what you've done is, you've dug quite deeply into your own li life here. Your own family, 
And um, how did you approach that? Uh, was it difficult to write about family and family relationships, especially your opa? That's a, there's a, a nice story about your opa. Your opa would always come to your rescue financially mm. and, 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 and hope that Buddha would take the right. <laughs> <laughs> and he never did. <laughs> but the hope, the, the hope never ended. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, that was the most uh, difficult part of the, of the book, actually. And I wrote it afterwards. I, I kind of wrote, I wrote the, no, well, not completely afterwards, but like about halfway through the book, um, my mentor, Mike Nichol, um, said to me, you know, this is all good and well, but you're going to have to, you're going to have to write something about yourself because you're writing a memoir and people want to know who they're dealing with. And um, so you're going to have to kind of, you know, give away a little bit about who you are and where you come from. So I kind of, I finished the story and, um, and then, and then I went back and wrote, wrote those chapters that kind of are more relating to my, my personal kind of youth history, you know, where I come from, my parents, my grandparents, brothers and sisters and so on. And, um, and that was a tricky, that was difficult actually. Okay. That, well, was, that was very hard. Also because uh, my parents are, you know, they're all gone now, mm-hmm. but my, my siblings are still around. And uh, there were some things that I kind of thought I should put in, but I wasn't sure how they would feel about it. Yeah. Um, but in the end, uh, in the end, they were cool about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> thankfully, I, I'm still talking to all of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I called Melinda uh, a little while ago, Melinda Ferguson, the publisher of the book, yes. and said, Melinda, I'm thinking about writing something. But you know, I have so many stories that involve so many other people. How did I get past? Past that, and she said to me, "Izzy, darling, just write it. <laughs> just write it. Yeah. They have to deal with it." So you know, it's very courageous of you to do that. But mm-hmm. if I, um, you know, can you just talk to us about the, the the punk influence in South African music, how that started as a, a form of resistance? Because what it's what it, what I read was that is young white. People of a particular sort of stripe, people who just did not want, who didn't fit into the conservative apartheid state's uh, order, sought an, an outlet, and then it went in, and punk gave a specific outlet point. But then that transmogrified into rock. And c- can you talk to us a bit about that resist early resistance period and how punk gave expression to a lot of the frustrations of the state mm. and we were living in? Well, it was a perfect vehicle. You know that that punk thing was a, was a was a perfect vehicle, but of course the irony is that it was already over in the rest of the world by the time it hit us. You know, um, not quite. I mean, it, it was a bit of an overlap, maybe a, a year or so. But but uh, you know, um, uh, Sid Vicious got killed. Um, oh, no, not no, he didn't get killed. He killed his girlfriend in the Chelsea Hotel in 1979, and. Um, and by that time, that was that was almost a signal that punk was over. And um, but it was only starting here then, right. you know, with the bands like Wild Youth and uh, and the Asylum Kids and uh, National Wake, great names, you know, and um, especially Asylum Kids. I mean, especially in National Wake. I mean, those those two bands uh, they chose their names very well. Um, they have a kind of political ring to it. And they were a lot more polit- politicized than um, than Wild Youth, for example. Wild Youth was more kind of a Sex Pistols kind of a Durban-based band. 
<clears throat> but um, I think what 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 kind of happened at the time is that is that this movement, even though it hit us later, kind of motivated people to, uh, and and because it was so rebellious um, and so anarchic, it it kind of attracted a certain part of 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 mainly white youth. There were a couple of uh, kind of black Africans and. And other kind of colored people and so on that were into it, but it was mainly a white movement, and um, and it it uh, it kind of it just it just happened to it just happened to work. Um, uh, it just happened to it just happened to work for the country. Yeah, yeah, Carson, that's <laughs> yeah. The the punk scene was was really uh, fascinating. It didn't quite take off in South Africa, mainly because it died off, as you said. But it was, there was, there were aspects of this. And, and I'd, I'd like to come back to the, the, the social, the resistance part. But I just wanted to also, the book deals very honestly and again, very courageously with the drug culture mm. that pervades South Africa mm. and most young people. And, you know, some people who are not so young, but it was almost as if drugs help people cope. With the apartheid state, mm. because it helped give ex- expression also to music. You dealt very courageously with it. Mm. You want to talk to us? About well, it? well, yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, you know, uh, up until this day, drugs has got the, they play it plays the same role. You know, it's it's a, it's a little uh, it's an escape valve, really. It's like to to let the pressure off mm. and to escape reality. And um, but you know, the drugs those days were actually. You know, quite innocent, really. I mean, if you compare to the to the stuff you you know that's available today, I mean, it's you know, I would uh, I would really shake my boots if I had a, a young teenager now. I mean, my, I do have a young. It's not a teenager anymore. He's like uh, you know, twenty seven. But um, but he d- also didn't really have to deal with it like that. The drugs those days were basically dope, you yeah. know, yeah. and uh, LSD, acid. Which I got introduced to a little bit later, mm-hmm. and um, buttons, you know, mm-hmm. mandrax, uh, which is American qualudes, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a depressant, and um, and uh, those those were the kind of uh, uh, there was a lot of over the counter stuff because because the drug scenario was was you know was. Uh, was so mild in a way. I mean, I've, I've actually, I, I've never really even uh, kind of seen, you know, dope as a drug, really. I mean, right. it's, uh, it's, it's, to me, it's, uh, it's on the same, on the same page as alcohol, you know, it's, it's better than alcohol, actually. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, so the, the drug, they, there was a big drug culture, I mean, in terms of, of that kind of drug, um, and you graduated kind of from dope to, to acid, acid seemed like a heavy drug, you know, and, uh, but there was no cocaine and no heroin around, none of the heavy addictive stuff, except for Mandrax. Mandrax was very addictive and that really, it screwed people's lives up. It really did. That, yeah, it does, it does mess people's lives up quite, uh, significantly. What have you, can you talk to us? Um, you introduce a very many, uh, and you bring to people. Actually, I was going to ask you if your 27 year old son had read the book and what he said, but let's. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> well, he should. Um, he will be. He's in Korea. He's, no, in Korea. No. he's, he's teaching there. Mm. I think you, you said. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned very many, um, bands from, mm. from the Asylum Kids, National Wake, um, 
Mapantula, I think. Um, where are these people now? Where are our bands now? Because I know Peter Cohen plays, Peter Cohen's still around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was with uh, the Bulleins and then with Bright Blue. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's now with Freshly Ground. Mm-hmm. Where are all these people now? Do you have any kind of a sense of where everyone is? You know, one thing the book did was uh, was bring me back into contact with a lot of the people that were that that I kind of hung around with in the 80s. And I'd kind of lost track with them, you know, but, um, but kind of, I got, we got, uh, writing this book kind of, I had to double check some things. And so I started making connections again with a lot of the people that, that, that were around at the time. And a lot of them are still making music. Good. I mean, Gary Herselman from the Carols. He's living in Seabrook. He recently brought out an album called, uh, from a, a fictitious band called Dilemma, in my opinion one of the best South African uh, uh, the album's called Richtung Bevok and it's one of the best albums in my opinion that you'll find in uh, of South African music today, really really good stuff yeah. and um, I'm still playing myself, I play with a guy called Dax Butler who's actually uh, features in the in the book also Llewellyn who's playing bass for us you know so a lot of the guys I mean just about everybody in our band is 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 over 50 you know there's one youngster the violin player Daniel he's like he's a, he's a youngster I think he's like 30 you know but uh, the rest of the people are all over 50 and we have great fun doing it it's like you know you've gotten rid of the, uh, the you don't want to you can't be a rock star or pop star anymore you know that right. whole pressure is gone now you're doing it just for pure fun and um, some guys are even still doing it professionally. You know, Tim Parr is around. He's still doing really, really great stuff, playing with a lot of people and uh, writing good material and uh, and very, very active. Well, you know, the, uh, Lee Lurcher, uh, mm. who played for the Cherry Face Lurchers, yes. uh, spoke to me a few years ago about writing. A, he wanted to write his story and the story of the Lurchers. Mm. But what I asked him, I, I suggested that I would prefer to write a story about this, let's call it a white musician, even though it was quite integrated with Mori from Kenya and mm. you know, v- v- um, various people who played with Tananas and Steve Newman. And mm. so, but I wanted, I'm very, I was very interested in, you know, when I came back and when I began as a journalist in the 80s, I, I lived in Yeovil and I was part of the Yeovil culture and it was, you know, loosely referred to as the Yeovil left. Mm. Um, but it was the white left, and and the story. These are the people who went into joined the UDF and the end conscription campaign. But one of the things that stood out for me about the musicians of that period is their obsession with original music. Mm. You have to write original music and not write cover versions. Mm. Now that has worked in in part commercially to your detriment, because. You know, as I go through the book, I remember the difficulties people had with playing original music. Mm. And very few of those people came up. You know, we, Mango Groove became famous, even though they, play, you know, the African jazz pioneers, they stuck to it. But they grew with people who remain purists, mm. like yourself, and like the, the Cherry Face Lurchers. Bright Blue also became very big. But the idea was to create original South African music that represented the pathologies of our society at the time. Mm. Do you do you agree with? That? Absolutely, and it really came to a fore when um, when when the whiteies started uh, kind of experimenting with black music, and with guma, you know, and uh, the Mbakanga rhythm started coming in, 
and uh, the Maskandi kind of sensibility, you know, Juluka. And uh, Mapansula is a really good example of uh, of a bunch of whiteies mixing up with with kind of you know black Af- Africans as we kind of said darkies at the time mm. you know and um, and it was a completely mixed band and they played they played Bakanga you know it was like uh, it was rousing stuff and uh, that's where freshly ground uh, kind of uh, not freshly ground uh, bright bright blue came from the same place mango groove. Also used the big band jazz, kind of African jazz, uh, kind of. So, mm. so, so it really that original music um, really came to a fall with something that was referred to as crossover, crossover music. You know, kind of yeah. mixing, mixing genres and actually doubling your market. You know, I mean, because it all has, of course, commercial repercussions. Yeah. So, um, I mean, with this, with this, uh, and and uh, what. And I, I find it quite hard that even today, I think there's less crossover today than there was then when it was illegal. You know, it's, it's, uh, somehow this kind of white South Africa is not mixing with black South Africa in terms of, or with African Africa in terms of its music. And, uh, and that's really how you, how you crack an international market because if you're going to go and do it with rock, you're competing with America and you're competing with the UK and I mean you know it's you're putting yourself in an untenable position really that's the, it's actually the the last point you made there is something I I, I explained to journalists and I I, 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 I told a journalist friend of mine um, you know she wants to write about Africa and African politics and uh, I, I said you know just remember this you cannot compete with Reuters but Reuters can't compete with you either mm. You take what you have. So I think what the point you're making is we can't compete with the large recording firms mm. in the world with the big acts, but they can't compete with us either because we have something that's unique. Mm, yeah. So that's, I think, if I may say, that was what, what we brought mm. to it. Now, I, I don't know um, if, if, you know, you mentioned Bright Blue. The Bright Blue thing is, is quite important because uh, Bright Blue's song, um, Weeping, do you remember mm. Weeping? Of course I do. That became a, a sort of an anthem of our time. Yeah, and covered, uh, covered by by a whole bunch of overseas people too. Oh really? Yeah, which brings them a lot of money. That's true. That's mm. also true. Because yeah. you, you mentioned the um, the talent of Tom Fox and mm. Dan Heyman. Mm. Um, Tom is in New Zealand, and 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 Dan is in, in New York. The Cohen brothers were here. Yes, the Cohen brothers are here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so you know the, that um, we there, there was a lot of. I, I, I'm actually. You mentioned the point that there was a lot more crossover then than there is now. It's a very interesting thing. But the, now that we're talking about then and now, you know, there's a passage in the book that that stands out for me, and and if I may just read it very quickly, it says, "The sense of goodwill is so strong." This is reflecting upon the 80s and the, the, the Pansulas and, uh, and, and the whole Jamison's era. Actually, Jamison's is an interesting place. Um, it, Jamison's was a, a hole into which we could all creep. <laughs> <laughs> it was a home away from home <laughs> where you could really get out of it. Yeah. I, I, the story of Jamison's needs to be written, but um, uh, it, it is a fascinating place, and people will remember that. You spoke about the Kruger licenses. Maybe we can just touch on that, but Jamison's was unique, and I just want to read a, a, a piece 
from the book that stood by me. It's the only page that I actually made ink um, notations on. It says, in, this is the mid-80s. Now, remember the time was a time of great difficulty in the country, lots of violence. But in this uh, subculture, in this counterculture, um, you write, the sense of goodwill is so strong, you can almost touch it. You want to grasp it with your chest, grasp it to your chest, hold it close to your heart and hope the feeling lasts forever. This is what this country could be like, plus the drinks are cheap. <laughs> oh yeah, that was the park. That was the park park, uh, park five saloon. <laughs> well, we, you know, there was a time indeed in the in the eighties. There was a lot of trouble in the country. I remember as a journalist um, running around, uh, working on the weekly mail, and um, it was it, it. Those were very difficult times. It was mm. tear gas. It was violence. It was killings. It was detentions. The ghastly thing, the necklace was around. Mm. And we would climb into this hall into Jamison's and we would just party. Mm. And some of the great creativity come, came out of that. And so that's the book that really, st- the, the part that st- stands out for me. So, um, if you want to, if you want to then place this book for us, you know, uh, very many books are written about those days and a lot of people are writing about it. Where do you, where would you like, the, what, what contribution would you like this book to make to uh, understanding of our, of our immediate past, mm. because the book it might be a memoir, but it it touches on some very interesting political themes, themes about um, disaffected white youth who refuse to uh, be part of the apartheid system and the Calvinist logic, uh, who refuse to go into the army because they will not fight against their fellow Africans, who refuse to go to the army just because they don't like authority and would rather smoke a rock boom than go on Balasbach. Mm. And and then there's, you know, there's a very interesting thing in the book that am I correct to assume that you were the first person to bring Juluga to Cape Town? Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk to us about that, that please? Okay. Um, about bringing Juluga to Cape Town, yeah. Well, you know, it was um, I, uh, my, uh, my friend's uh, um, Hofi and myself, we were trying to organize a, a festival in the Transkai, a reggae festival that, um, that in the end <laughs> didn't materialize. And it's a very funny story, but, but you're going to have to read the book for that one. But, um, <clears throat> so, uh, so I was back in Stellenbosch actually, uh, those days and, um, and, uh, I got a phone call from a guy that said, um, How's your festival going in the Transkai? And I said it's not going. And he said, well, you know, he's interested in in um, he's interested in investing in a festival. And I thought, wow, geez, someone is actually prepared to invest in something as risky as this. So, so we started talking, and then and then he said, well, look, if you can if you can um, if you can kind of you know contract uh, uh, one of the top bands, then I'm in. So I said, well, how about Jaluka? And he said. Yeah, absolutely. But how are you going to get them? And I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I tried to get them for about two weeks. I tried everybody. I, I didn't want to go through their record company because then, then it becomes a whole kind of a, a whole, I was nobody. I was just a, I was just a, a young hippie punk type long head, uh, kind of guy, you know, messing around in this business here so I knew it but I wouldn't get any luck going to a record company so you know so I asked everybody I knew and uh, no one had uh, Johnny's uh, phone number 
So um, I wanted to contact Johnny. So in the end, I walked into the post office and 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 I saw a whole bunch of directories stacked there. And I thought, oh, they're all from from all over the country. And I thought, wow, maybe maybe Johnny Clegg's number is in the Joburg directory, you know. And I went and grabbed it and I checked it out, and there were a whole bunch of Cleggs there. And I wrote down all the numbers of all the people that had a J in it. And I went home and I phoned him because there were no cell phones. So I couldn't phone there, you know. So I went home and phoned him from a landline. And by the the second call, it was actually Johnny Clegg that answered the phone and said, Johnny Clegg speaking, you know. So I got hold of him like that. And, uh, and, um, and he was excited about it. And, um, and, uh, and, and then, uh, he trusted me, yeah, you know, to bring him to, to bring him and his band to, to Cape Town. Well, that's, you know, I remember the funniest, funny thing, um, that the first words Johnny Clegg said to you when he shook your hands was he thought you were older. Yes. <laughs> okay, Carsten, listen, we have to wrap this up, but listen, thank you so very much for being in the studio. Mm. And this, the book really took me back to a time of great difficulty for all of us, but a time of great hope. Yes. It was a time of great hope. Yeah. So um, I really appreciate it. And Carsten has written the book, uh, Between Rock and a Hard Place. It's a memoir, but it is it is uh, seeped in the political the situation in the political economy of our of south africa in the 80s and um yeah and so let me just say th- uh, th- thanks to, to carsten but this is uh the spot that i want to introduce into my uh, my show and a regular uh, piece on books writing reading and uh, why we should write, uh, should read and why we should write because our stories are need to be told and our children need to be taught